Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Not one, not two, not three, not four, but five different providers screwed up. You know, you don't have to say fail to act as reasonable and prudent providers understand. You say screwed up, and here's how they screwed up. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm I'm excited to talk about our our case today. I feel like this is a case that there's so much to talk about that, and I feel like this case parts of it are going to sound familiar to almost everybody who listens to right. our show. But it was all in kind of one case, and I think a lot of people would be scared of this case. So well, I, I mean, it, and we'll talk to our two great uh, guests that we have who tried uh, tried this case. That and as we were talking before, that uh, this was actually kind of like four uh, separate uh, medical malpractice cases wrapped into one. Um, and, and we're going to talk about the causation string here, that uh, a, a long story on causation of, of uh, uh, Miss Carolyn Burstey uh, getting her leg amputated. But let me go ahead and welcome uh, our guests. Uh, we have uh, James M. Bo Bolas and uh, Nick Mudd uh, with us today. How are you guys doing? Great, great. Doing Thanks great. for having us. Thank you. Well, um, you know, as we were saying, and we'll, we'll get into the case more, uh, but this was a uh, extremely complex case, and uh, and and just a a great uh, job at, at trial, and uh, and I can't wait to talk about it. But let me introduce everybody to you, so we can so everybody can know who our guests are. Uh, Bo, I'll start with you. Uh, Bo Bolus is uh, a founding partner of uh, Bolus Law Offices in Louis, Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, Bo has been, uh, he's a, a grad of the University of Kentucky undergrad and University of Kentucky Law School. Uh, he's been named as uh, one of the best medical malpractice lawyers in Louisville in 2020, named as a top 100 trial lawyer for Kentucky by the American Trial Lawyers Association, uh, and named uh, by the Kentucky Trial Court Review as Trial Lawyer of the Year for 2020. And uh, and then I, as I saw, uh, Bo, your father was uh, an acclaimed uh, sports journalist. Is that right? The doctor of derbyology. The doctor of derbyology. Well, I, I had the opportunity to go to one uh, Kentucky Derby, and uh, it was just a great time. It, it rained the entire time, but we still had a had, had just a great time there. But uh, I, I imagine that's something you guys go to quite often or every year. We do our best. We do our best. What year did you go? Uh, it was, uh, probably about three years ago. And, um, and I just remember it was a very muddy track and, um, and I, I, I can't remember what section I got into, but I, I saw, um, I saw Johnny Knoxville there. I saw Kid Rock there. Uh, I saw all kinds of people walking around. It was, it was quite the experience. You were in the mansion or the millionaire's (laughs) row. I I don't know. I got invited. I I got invited. So it was uh, nothing that I I did, but but somehow, somehow I made it in there. I I, I will say with that, I don't want to defame anybody, but Johnny Knoxville was having a little bit of trouble using the, uh, the betting machines, Um, (laughs) you know, so, (laughs) but um, well, uh, both. It's so great to have you on the show. And let me also introduce Nick, Mud. Uh, Nick is the uh, founding uh, law partner of Mud Legal Group, uh, in, also in Louisville, Kentucky. And I think you guys are actually in the same building, uh, one floor away from each other. And Nick is uh, a fantastic trial lawyer, uh, not just in uh, personal injury law and in civil uh, trial law, but in criminal uh, uh, trials. And uh, Nick, I saw that you, in at one point in time in your career, 
won five murder trials in a row in the span of four months. I mean, so uh, I have never tried a murder trial. I have to imagine that they uh, take quite a bit of preparation. So to do something like that in four months uh, has got to be, um, uh, I mean, just it, it's a it's it's a great uh, feat. And probably uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure after that four months, you were probably just worn out. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Never again. Never right. again. I got right. shingles during it. Uh, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. There's a, uh, yeah. And then the doctor's like, don't ever do that again. So yeah. <laughs> right, right. it was good, you know, but never again. Yeah. Like yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that you are, are glad that you were able to accomplish in your career, but never want to, never want to uh, try and, uh, try and do again. Um, so, so Nick, now, I mean, a, a number of your cases that you've worked on have been featured on ABC World News, U.S. News uh, and World Report, USA Today, uh, in a TV show called Fear My Neighbor. And you've been on court TV and have uh, just had a great uh, trial career, uh, both on the criminal side and in the uh, in the civil side. So, uh, so Nick, uh, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And yeah, the Fear My Neighbor was the that was the most fun. And I, the funny thing is, is I've told people I'm like who watches this show? Who watches it? And I've had about 20 people come up to me and say, I saw you on that show. And I'm like, That's what awesome. show? I'm like, so you're the kind of person that watches that show. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and um, Bo and Nick, right. so are, are y'all just going to get, right, exactly. are, are y'all going to let Steve um, get away with his pronunciation of uh, your fair city? Louisville. 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 Two syllables. Louisville. <laughs> Oh, because I because I said Louisville, you say Louisville. Louis, sorry, you say Louisville. No <laughs> well, I grew up playing baseball, so I always called it a Louisville slugger. <laughs> Louisville. I'll, I'll get it right one of these times. Uh, Yvonne's making fun of me because she's not, she uh, grew up not far from where you guys are. She was down in Franklin, Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Love I also it. I just know that's very important to people from Louisville. So you got to get it right. So. I should have gotten it right. My cousin went to the University of Kentucky, and I'm originally from Ohio, so I'm not too far away. Um, but, uh, anyway. well, anyways, well, so I, I've got one pronunciation screw up. I'm sure I'll have some more, <laughs> um, as we go along, but, um, well, let's talk about this case, uh, that you tried in December of 2019. Um, I, I'm going to give a, just a, a, an overview of the facts and, and where I've messed it up. Make sure to let me know. Um, but this was a, a complex medical case. Your client's name was, uh, Carolyn Bursty. And the name of this case was uh, Bursty versus the University Medical Center, Inc. DBA as University of Louisville. Did I say that right? Hospital? There you go. Close enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I think there, the other defendants were uh, Dr. Marvin Morris um, and Franciscan Health Center, as well as a um, Dr. Mark A. Munley. And then there was another doctor involved named uh, Dr. Kimberly Brunley. But we'll talk about that in a second because it sounded like there was another pending action in federal court against her uh, that uh, same same fact situation. But since that was covered under uh, the Federal Tort Claims Act, that was in a in a different court. Um, but uh, so essentially, uh, Carolyn uh, went in for an aortic bypass in uh, 2011. And um, during that aortic bypass, uh, the doctor, Dr. Morris, I think, severed uh, a renal vein if I saw and it was described as just a, a, a bloody mess and during that uh, operation they had to use a number of surgical sponges in order to uh, mop up the blood uh, and it 
these are 18 inch by 18 inch surgical sponges. Um, this was right around lunchtime when this happened. They finished the surgery and um, in the surgery, at least that part of it was a success uh, in order to restore sort of blood flow to her, her legs and make sure that her legs were uh, um, um, getting adequate blood flow because she was a diabetic. And we'll talk about that some more. Um, but they, the nurses, uh, forgot to do a count of the sponges and this, and left a sponge inside of, uh, uh, of Carolyn and it stays in there for four years. And, um, and so she's got this sponge in her for four years, um, starts having vomiting and diarrhea, uh, goes to the hospital uh, where they see on, on this on the sponges for anybody that knows they have a, a magnetic marker that are on the sponges and so they do an x-ray or and uh, the magnetic marker shows up the doctor who ordered that uh, x-ray was Dr. Munley uh, Dr. Munley was told Nunley. that there, what? Nunley, I'm sorry Nunley. Nunley. oh sorry Nunley. 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 I had that written down wrong all right Nunley um, doc, Dr. Nunley he um, uh, didn't tell her treating physician, uh, Dr. Brumleave, that um, that there was this uh, a marker, this marker of a sponge inside of um, uh, Miss Bursty, and didn't tell Miss Bursty. Um, and so, an, another twenty months go by, and I guess I guess Dr. Brumleave uh, should have known had she looked at the report, but she wasn't told directly by Dr. Nunley. But uh, but so another 20 months go by where they don't do anything. She's, you know, still having symptoms, treating it um, with, you know, things like Tums and stuff like that and uh, has uh, more bad accidents of both um, and, uh, vomiting and diarrhea. And so she goes to the hospital again 20 months later. I think we're into 2017 at this point. Um, and they do another x-ray and they again notice the uh, magnetic marker of the of the sponge that is in her. At this point in time, the, the sponge has uh, disintegrated and has made its way into her, her, her intestines and has caused an intestinal blockage. Uh, and so basically at that point in time, uh, they have to do an emergency surgery uh, laparotomy in order to remove the sponge. Um, and then because of that surgery, um, they, she, she goes to a rehab facility and that's where Franciscan health center, I think comes into it. And she, and they are understaffed, uh, not able to, to, uh, do proper lifting techniques. She ends up developing a, a blister or a pressure ulcer on her, uh, on the back of her left foot. And that uh, essentially gets to the point that pressure ulcer on her on her foot gets to the point where they have to amputate uh, her left leg. Uh, it looked like it was a below the knee leg amp amputation um, of her left leg. And so um, and, and so that was essentially the claim. And so they, there was a case brought against University of uh, Medical Center for missing the, the sponge and against Dr. Morris for missing the sponge against Dr. Nunley and Dr. Brunleave for missing it four years later or not, not telling her about it four years later. And then against Franciscan Healthcare for the uh, pressure, um, pressure sore that uh, caused her to get her leg amputated. So a very, um, a, a very long uh, causation 
story. I mean, story for the whole case, but uh, to get to the, you know, uh, the retained sponge causing the um, the uh, leg amputation is just sort of a, a long, uh, almost six year long story. Um, and so the verdict that uh, that Bo and Nick uh, got on beh- on behalf of Miss Bursty was uh, nine and a half million in compensatory damages, uh, eight a little bit over eight million for this was for pain and suffering, and then a million dollar punitive damages award against University Medical Center for a total verdict of ten million five hundred thousand. Um, and from what I understand, that this was in. Jefferson County, which uh, I saw in one of the articles, I think before your case had a string of 33 medical malpractice defense verdicts in a row uh, before before your case. Um, so just a number of uphill battles in, in the case. And um, and we're, we're going to talk a, a lot about all these things, including the fact that uh, the University of uh, Louisville Hospital wouldn't even uh, admit that the sponge that was in Miss Bursty uh, was their sponge. They tried to claim it was left over from a surgery in 1988, a gallbladder surgery. Despite so, definitive x-ray evidence before the surgery in question 11 that showed no radiopaque marker. And that's what right. really frustrated me when we try the case after, um, after Thanksgiving in 19, start on a Tuesday, the Thursday before, or the Wednesday before I get a call and they, they finally admit it was their sponge after three years, but there was definitive X-ray evidence of no sponge being in her. Uh, I mean, you know, that, that is, you know, we've all been through those cases where we think it's clear as day and it's just frustrating. I mean, uh, to put you through that kind of thing and really to put your client through that, uh, you know, is really, uh, what's galling about that? You know, they they clearly made a mistake and should have just taken responsibility uh, for it right up front, but uh, but refused. Instead to. of offering a sixty five thousand dollars at the first mediation, you're darn straight. Yeah. I mean, you got it right. You did an excellent synopsis, but it can really be summarized in two sentences. They left a sponge in a lady, didn't tell her about it when it showed up on X ray four years later, and then when they found it six years after the fact, and they and they cut it out of her, she got laid up. And due to the fact she had peripheral vascular disease and diabetes, she was at risk for full foot ulcers and she got her leg lopped off. Right, right. You know, exactly. Immobility, you know, and they want to make it so difficult and how everybody's acting like we had to connect all these dots that were so far apart. It's very simple. She got laid up. Immobility leads to pressure ulcers. Anybody who does any kind of medical or nursing homework knows that. Right. So we right. have the nursing in the shoddy care at the nursing home exacerbated the situation because she had a pressure ulcer brewing on her left heel when they were then short-staffed at the nursing home, requiring her to push up with her left foot instead of have, because they were, didn't have two people to use a lift sheet, which is just the sheet you have on your bed, one person on each side and pull you up. And she then sheared the skin off of her heel. And our um, chief of vascular surgery at the University of Illinois, Chicago, Martin Borhani was phenomenal, very understated gentleman, but very accomplished. And he just laid it out there for him. It was really simple for the jury to do the right thing. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I wanted to, I, I was going to start sort of backwards here, but um, it, it is not, I, it is unusual in my experience to see a punitive damages verdict come out of a medical malpractice case. So I, I wanted to talk to you guys about that, about, um, I mean, obviously some of this is egregious, but did what did the jury see or what did you all tell the jury that got them to the point of not only awarding compensatory damages, but punitive damages? 
the fact that they had a it was a systemic failure combined with cavalier nurses. What it amounts to is they had a policy that said you're supposed to do counts at point at, at six different times, and they had a count sheet or perioperative nursing record that didn't both of which didn't have the six different counts. So they just took it upon themselves to count when they wanted to count. They're supposed to count at lunch breaks. They had no place to record on the documentation account at lunch breaks. Plus, they thought it was a waste of time. These nurses did. And they took it right. upon themselves to avoid policy. And Judge Perry correctly determined that the actions of the nurses combined with the, um, the system's failure and having appropriate documentation for them to use was reckless conduct. That, and the jury you know, saw it as such. But they didn't they didn't load up on them. They only gave a million, you know, Wait, I, relative I agree. to the whole case. Although I thought I saw, you know, and that, that was one thing I was going to ask you about your uh, your verdict form is I see. So each one of the so you, you the three places for compensatories that they could award were past medical expenses, future medical expenses and then pain and suffering. And then for punitives, uh, there's a line for punitives, but each one of them have a, a, a cap number on them. And I was just wondering about Kentucky procedure. Is every part of damages capped in some way or? They're only capped in that we're limited to what we request in pretrial discovery for those element of damages. I could have put a hundred million. And, okay. you know, you always kind of got to go with your gut. You don't want to ask too much and offend the jury. But right. I told Nick when he brought me this case back in um, late 16, early 17, you know, you, you know, I see how successful You've been Steve and, and Yvonne and with your huge verdict, you know, you just get it in your gut. You know, these cases don't come along too often. And when they do, you know, you don't want to let go of them. Chief. That's right. Because, you know, yeah. just they just don't come along that often. That, that fact pattern, you know, they the, at University of Kentucky, they use it in their trial, um, their, their their trial course for the for the law students because of oh, the fact great. we had, you know, retained foreign body um, communication error from an ER doctor, a communication error from a family doctor subject to federal torts claim, and then you want to, you know, throw on top of it a nursing home negligence case. Right, and, right, exactly. But the causation is really simple. It goes back to torts 101. You know, I mean, it's that, it's that basic. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, it really is, and, and and you're right. I mean, from a from a logical standpoint, you, I just know how defense lawyers look at stuff like this, and they'll sit there and say, well, you know, this is six years later. I mean, how are you tying this into, um, you know, the the retained sponge kind of thing? Well, it, one thing I did want to ask is, did it, did they try to raise a statute of limitations argument on you at all at any point? No, they didn't. Okay. Um, we we Nick brought it to me. Um, he. It was a family friend and Nick immediately went out and signed him up. And we, you know, we tried to mediate it early on. I gave them the opportunity. They didn't, they didn't take us seriously. So we just filed right away. Yeah. And we did have to add the, um, the nursing home because like the month after we filed it or the month we filed the lawsuit was when the incident was where she shared the skin off the, off of her heel. So we had to add them, but we still had plenty of time on them. Yeah. And interestingly, well, I, our Bevan was our microcosm of Trump. Um, and he comes in and he's a Republican governor and, and initiates this unconstitutional tort reform that made us go to medical review panel. So we you know, had to double file it to begin with. But all the judges knew how nonsensical. I mean, it was it was cart it was it was literally cartoonish. It was like they wrote it with the, the big fat pencil you had in second grade. This 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 tort reform. I, I mean, I'm not right. I can't I can't do justice to how poorly it was written. And so that slowed things up for about eight months, too. I mean, even the judge in the case was like, well, once we get past the tort reform stuff and it's right. ruled unconstitutional, we'll come back and, you know, 
And so that's why the case went on and on. We were all just sitting there waiting for it to happen. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this. But now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization. It's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. Gosh, Nick, you had to be thinking. I mean, we've all, I think as lawyers, you get those cases that that come in one way or another from another lawyer, sometimes from a family friend or or whatever. And and I feel like more often than not, if I hear about something through a friend um, or kind of in a casual way, it's it's a lot of times it's related to somebody who thinks they've been a victim of medical malpractice, medical negligence. But what is crazy about this case is that this poor woman, you know, we we talk we talk on on a lot of episodes of this show. We talk about medical malpractice and the trust that you have to put in medical providers and how these cases can be about trust. But this poor woman, I just feel like was betrayed every step of the way by everyone. I mean, the idea that this the sponge gets left in her and then somebody finally finds it and doesn't tell her about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then what happens, then she goes somewhere where they don't even have enough people to give her the bare minimum of care when she's trying to recover from this surgery that she should never have had to have. I mean, this poor woman must have, I would have the worst. I would never want to go to a doctor ever again. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sweetest lady, sweetest, sweetest lady, very low socioeconomic. Um, life's really, you know, kicked her in the shins a lot and treated her like a blue wall, blue spot on a blue wall by all these five different medical providers. But when she called me, she said, I've called a bunch of lawyers and nobody will call me back. So your uncle told me to give you a call and said you were a lawyer who could help me out. And I said, well, what happened? And she goes, well, I don't really know. But uh, this surgeon, which, by the way, the surgeon never admitted this in the deposition, would never admit it ever, still probably won't admit it. The surgeon 
told her, hey, I found this in you, and you might want to call a lawyer, wink, wink. Right, yeah. And, of course, the surgeon would not admit that. But ironically, the surgeon did admit that she took a picture of it with her cell phone. And it's like, you know, it was that egregious where the surgeon kept it once it was removed and pulled out her cell phone, took a picture of it, and texted it to our to our client. And so, you know, she had called me, and then I, you know, that, then I came in and talked to Bo, and we signed her up after that. But, um, oh, so this, you know, the poor lady surgeon, didn't know the surgeon took a picture of it with her cell phone. The surgeon who removed it, who actually took it out of her, pulled out her cell phone and took a picture of the surgical sponge and texted it to the client. And basically, she didn't say anything in the text. She just texted it and said, "Hey, I think you need to call a lawyer." Wow. So, okay. and, and that's Which the surgeon that, again never would admit that. Right. And that's where you got the picture because you you sent us your uh, opening and closing right. slides and you had a picture of the sponge after it came out of her. That's where you got those pictures was from the doctor. Yeah, it's sitting right there in the uh, on the tray. That's from that was straight actually from the surgeon who removed it, who was very hostile to us in a deposition wanted nothing to do with this case at all they don't I mean, like us too she much. got nasty yeah. during the deposition it was a room full of 10 lawyers it was a it was quite a mess but it was hot as can be and it was about seven or six o'clock in the afternoon we took her depot oh. and um she did not want anything to do with it at all yeah yeah i mean we we've all been in those cases uh you know especially in medical malpractice where they they don't want to talk to you. They lawyer up. I mean, even though they, you know, there is no suit against them. There's no claim that they did anything wrong, and they, they still, uh, they, they, they get very hostile. Um, uh, I, I have tried on occasion. I wonder if, if you all have had any luck. I have tried on occasion to bring my client and uh, sit him right next to the doctor during the deposition just to see if they're still as hostile. And usually, it calms them down a little bit. It, it, uh, it's always helpful when you could. It wasn't doable with Carolyn in this situation because right. of the small room and her wheelchair. But no, yeah. yes, that's a great move. That's a great move. Um, well, let's talk about, um, I mean, so, I mean, you guys, like we said, I mean, you're essentially trying a number of cases and you would you would think this the sponge case would have been just slam dunk from the very beginning. But as we've already said, uh, they, you know, found a 1988 gallbladder surgery that she had and then tried to say that the sponge had been sitting in there, uh, that whole time, which just seems, uh, ridiculous. But then you know, on top of that, um, you know, the, I mean, there really is no good argument that leaving a sponge in some, in somebody isn't a breach of the standard of care. And you all brought that out during your you know opening and closing, uh, from what we could read very well. Um, but it, it, um, Carolyn did have a number of, of, of medical issues, let's say, and, uh, and that, that seemed to be a, a big part of their defense, um, as far as that she was a diabetic, that she had peripheral vascular disease. And that, um, I think they also mentioned she, that smoked. she, she smoked, she was obese, um, and just had, had didn't exercise. Made, yeah, had a poor lifestyle choices, that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, talk about how you address that. And, and, you know, one thing that I noticed that I, that I, when I read this, I was like, oh, that could be a problem. But so she had previously had her toes on her right foot amputated because of circulatory problems and, and because of her diabetes. Correct. The day, um, either before or after the aortic by femoral bypass, a, a podiatrist came in and, and, and cut off the toes on her right foot and she had a stomp down there. That's why she needed the bypass. She was getting such poor blood flow. 
Okay. Yeah. And I'm sure that was something that, that along with other things is, was picked up on uh, by the defense yeah. as, as a, you know, that she was, yeah. I mean, it sounded like their defense was, you know, there's nothing we were going to be able to do to save her leg. She was going to lose it no matter what. They, they picked on her so much that at one point, every deposition that should have been an hour and a half to two hours was four hours because they would literally read through her record to whatever doctor about her, her weight, her smoking, her PVD, her diabetes. And at one point they were taking the family doctor and the defense lawyer finally figured it out at the very end of trial when I'm playing the depot. She goes, we can cut that down if you want. No, I go, no, we don't have to cut that down, Karen. We're going to play the whole thing, particularly that one visit where you pointed out that she went from 260 pounds one month to 160 pounds the next month. And that means it had to be a typo in the record. Well, guess what? There's a lot of heavy people down here in good old Kentucky, Anna, and you don't need to be picking on people, you know, and, and, you don't need to throw stones when you live in a glass house. Right. And they brought up every appointment, you know, they, those, that generic entry that, you know, you need to quit smoking. Well, no doubt, no, no doubt you need to quit smoking. My mom's 76 years old, been smoking a pack and a half a day and drinking her glass of wine ever since dad died. You know, people smoke and they don't, you know, big deal. They wanted to make her out to be the cause of all of her problems. But again, but for that sponge and the immobility, she doesn't lose her life. The well, you problem know, was, oh, go ahead, Nick. Sorry, you you go, Nick. No the problem, Steve. Was that at some point I, we looked at each other and were like, "This is offensive." Yeah. Let them go. Let yeah. them go. And they kept going and kept going. And every time one of the defense lawyers would say obese or obesity, I could see some of the jurors just like, "Okay, lady, you've asked this. You've asked thirty witnesses the same thing, and you've asked them the same question about her being obese seventeen times. We yeah. get it." So I think at some point, you know, if there was a if there was a bite to it, uh, they that bite was taken away once it they they over I think they overdid it. They could have just oh, yeah. said it, left it, argued it, but instead they just hit it so much that it became uh it Bo 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 did closing and in closing he kind of turned it around on him to say this woman sat here the whole time for two weeks and that's what she's had to listen to obesity obesity yeah. fat overweight constantly and it. I don't know. I think that some of the jurors certainly thought that was quite offensive at that yeah. point. Yeah, one of the things I thought was really effective in the closing, or at least the outline that we had of it, was that, you know, you made the point in in bringing up this issue of what her pre-existing conditions were that you know, yeah, she was sick and she got very sick and she needed doctors. She deserves she deserves doctors and medical care just like just like everybody else. Right. Exactly. Exactly right. And that's the thing, you know, what happened to her and I found that in this in the, you know, that crocodile deal that that, that one guy came up with, you know, that you want to scare the jury into thinking um, ball, that ball guy who did that crocodile <laughs> thing. <laughs> reptile. <laughs> reptile. reptile. No, I, I like it. I like yeah. Well, I mean, he, I, one of the guys in my office, the guy who got the, the verdict on um, 33 cases ago, Nick Nazer on that dental case is also in my office, actually right. went down and did a did a, a seminar with um with with the ball guy down in Atlanta. And I looked at Nick, I laughed, I said, You gotta tell you gotta get a seminar on this. You want to scare the crowd out of the jury. And if this can happen to you know her, it can happen to anyone. You know, it's just yeah. sort of an intuitive thing. And if you can market it and put together a book and sell seminars, that's all great. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, that's, yeah. you know, you don't, you don't sit there and you can't violate the golden rule and say, what if this happened to you? But if you say, right. look, this could happen to anybody. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, um, you know, one of the things about the, and I have, you know, I have no, nothing wrong with against, uh, uh, Don Keenan and, and David Ball for their, you know, putting that book together. Cause a lot of people followed it, but it, we got their books. One, yeah. one thing is frustrating is that you things that you are already doing in trial, you'll now get a motion saying, you know, we don't want plaintiffs doing the reptile theory. And, I get and I'm like, I, I don't, do, I'm not doing the reptile theory. I'm trying the case, you know, the way we're allowed to try the case under the law, you know, the, you know, you don't have to put some name on it. Um, but uh, anyways, it's um, frustrating. I'm curious with the pre-existing, you know, conditions. And at one point, at least in, in the outline that you sent us, you t- you explained to the jury the idea of an eggshell plaintiff. Um, and I'm wondering how much, I don't know what um, Vordire is like in Kentucky, how much you were allowed to do with that in, in jury selection and how much you actually did do with getting them ready for this idea of somebody who already had pre-existing conditions. Nick here did the voir dire and did an excellent job. How many civil voir dires had you done before that one? I've done 76 criminal voir dires and zero civil. So that was my <laughs> first civil. I, it, improved, it improved my theory that jury selection, and we hired, we did, I hired my first jury consultant for this case, but I think jury selection is just a crapshoot. <laughs> you know, there's no rhyme or reason to, you know, the foreman was against us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of the people on the jury like was us. employed by U of L and was for us. So go figure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But yeah. our voir dire, I mean, you know, I've, I've tried a ton of felony level criminal cases. Uh, Eastern I did most, most of those have been felonies, but normally you got to kind of get people to talk and then you kind of hit on either a gun issue or something to kind of get everybody pissed off or have whatever yeah. it could mm-hmm. be. Right away, I stood up. I didn't even open my mouth, introduce myself, and said, first question, boom, four hands went up and said, I can't believe you're suing doctors. I mean, this is offensive. I mean, right, right away. So mm. it was uh that it, it was I was up there for almost probably two or three hours. I'd say close to three hours. We probably had about 60 objections. I mean, I couldn't get a word out, every other word, objection, judge, objection, objection. Um, but it worked out and we end up um, you know, I, I think though we could divide them up pretty well. Most of the jurors who were going to be sympathetic and those who weren't, but they're, those last few cuts were tedious. And actually, as Bo said, we, we narrowed it. Our foreman was one we had it narrowed down to, and we made a terrible call on her because when she, once the verdict came back, they were leaving all the jurors wanted to come talk to us. I stopped her and said, ma'am, thank you. I know you don't have to talk to me, but, and she said, I wouldn't give you all a dime. And she stormed out the door. So, wow. Um, you know, we made a bad call on that one. And that was one of the ones we had on our sheet as a final strike or not strike. Yeah. Right. Right. But it, so in what I saw, I mean, I do I do want to uh, hear about Jefferson County and, and just what kind of uh, makeup it is. But I saw that against or at least I thought I saw somewhere that against the University of Louisville, the verdict was uh, unanimous. But then against, I think, the, some of the other doctors, it was a, a nine to three. Uh, uh, verdict. So it sounds like she at least voted for you on the University of Lo- Louisville, right? I need to check on that. I thought that okay. was nine to three too. But. Okay, maybe, maybe maybe I read that wrong. That could be my mistake. So Nick White, since you were picking the jury, just talk uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, Jefferson County and what 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 kind of makeup it is. And obviously, it sounds like they, you know, uh, you know. 
lean towards, uh, you know, doctors are trying to help people. So, right. um, so, you know. you know, I come from a criminal side of things. Okay. So Jefferson yeah. County, Louisville's here, big city, you know, one of the, it's 27th largest city. So compared to the rest of the state, it's extremely liberal versus the rest of the state's extremely conservative. So from a criminal side, you know, you always want to try a case in Louisville versus the rest of the state if you can, generally, unless it's, say, a self-defense. But on the civil side, you would think a lot of people say, oh, they must be really pro-plaintiff there. They are, except when you get into medical providers. Yeah. Uh, this this city employs thousands of people in the in the medical field. Uh, I mean, there's it's probably the either first or second largest industry, I would say, in this region. Um, you've got a lot of research going on at UofL. Um, the first hand transplant was here with Coots and Kleinert. That's a big deal. Um, you've just got a lot of uh, the, the city employs just tons of, uh, you know, staff and people that work for the hospital. They work for the university and they work for the surrounding hospitals. So when we went through jury selection, I mean, normally you say, hey, you know, do you have anybody in your just immediate family? And people raise their hand. Oh, I've got a third cousin at X, Y and Z. Well. This jury, I mean, it was like either they were a nurse, doctor, or a, a educator in the medical field, or their husband, wife, or daughter, or son uh, were involved. And so I would consider it a, I, I don't want to say a hostile jury, but it's certainly, we were 10 steps back from out of the gate in terms of pre, uh, as you call them, preconceived biases. Yeah, yeah. Well, so t I mean, so I think you've talked about it a little bit as far as how the, the case was defended and, and some of the stuff that they did. Uh, you know, that was insulting, but how, how, what do you think turned it with you with this jury? If they, if, I mean, you, it sounds like when you, at least when you open, you may not have felt great about them. I, I think, um, just talking to them like people. Yeah. I think we were likable, uh, relatable. You know, I noticed I come from the criminal side. So for me, we try a, a lot more cases usually. I mean, my normal thing is I'm trying. I mean, there's been some years where I've tried upwards of 10 cases, 11 cases in a year. Um, now I may try one or two a year with, with Corona, obviously it's kind of changed things, but normally right. I average three to four a year. And those are usually two to five day trials, but you kind of learn as a criminal lawyer, you just talk to people. Yeah. You know, I notice a lot of the civil guys that, and, and Bo's a fine lawyer. I'm sure you guys have you know, huge <laughs> verdicts behind your names, but a lot of the civil people I notice are much more stiff. Yeah. And for me, I always tell I've I learned just get up there and talk to the jury like they're I always think it's my mom and dad sitting there and I'm just talking yeah. to them and having a conversation. Mm -hmm. I, I, I totally agree. And I've I've talked to especially young lawyers about this. You know, you gotta be yourself, you gotta be relaxed. And and if you make a mistake, just own the mistake. It's not the end of the world. They they like to see you as a human. Uh they you know, they I, the more you relate to them, the more you're human, the more you make mistakes, usually the better they like you. So um, what turned this case, frankly, was not only was a sponge left in her, it's, it eroded into her intestine. Yeah. Imagine having something like this sponge, 18, this is in your intestine, and it stayed in there for a year and a half. And then she got her leg lopped off from cruddy nursing home care. I mean, it was just what turned the case was it's just so unbelievable. I yeah. mean, you saw the opening. The first thing I said to him, I know you didn't believe me two weeks ago, but it happened. <laughs> not one, not two, not three, not four, but five different providers screwed up. You know, you don't have to say fail to act as reasonable and prudent providers on the same. You say screwed up. And here's how right. they screwed up. You know, we had Verna Gibbs. Um, she does very few um, expert. There's, there's very, there are very little medical malpractice work. She is the 
guru of reform, retained foreign bodies to the extent that the joint commission you saw on the slides uses her own website, no thing left behind, as a teaching tool for all doctors. So if you, you know, the joint commission for those listening certifies all the, that don't know, certifies all the hospitals and basically allows them to get Medicare, Medicaid money is kind of the crux of it. I mean, they got all kinds of rules, but the whole, you got to qualify with joint commission to be eligible for government um, funds, at least here in, you know, in Kentucky. And I'm sure that's everywhere. And um, Verna is the go-to person for the joint commission. And she was, you know, if you ever get a good foreign body case, you can get her on your side. You know, you can't go wrong. But see, Bo focuses on experts and coming from the criminal side. That doesn't mean anything to me. Okay. <laughs> what matters to me is that the person relatable. And for me, that was his bread and butter, the experts. That's not what I know. It's not what I'm used to dealing with. I'm used to dealing with having people look at somebody in the eyes and say, are they are they being sincere? Are they being, you know what I mean? Are they, are they yeah. telling the truth? Cause that's what most criminal cases come down to. And when Carolyn testified, we had a guy, he kind of looked like a tough guy. I don't want to say he was, you know, kind of a say redneck guy, but just on our jury looked like a kind of guy you wouldn't want to mess with a big old boy. And um, when she was testifying, she was so just honest. And we, you know, we prepped her very well. Like we went through all the questions. And so she knew where we were going and, you know, not in a fake way, but in a way that we, I wanted her to know what was going to be asked of her and what we, you know, the testimony we wanted to elicit. But the guy started crying in the front row. Oh, wow. She started talking about soiling herself in the seat. She started bawling. He started bawling. And that's kind of what it's like. Okay. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're connecting with them. Wow. No, absolutely. What did, um, what the, did, did the defense do with her on the stand, if anything? Uh, just, uh, it, well, not much, but again, it was the insulting her about her weight. Yeah. One of the lawyers said the word obese at least probably nine times with her up there. And he looked at me and he just said, they're burying themselves. They're burying themselves. Yeah. yeah. And he said, let her go. Because I almost objected to something to be like, judge, this is yeah. almost badgering my witness at this point. But yeah. I said, let her go. Let her go. Yeah. My goal is to not object at all during a trial. That's no, my absolutely. goal. Yep. And I did a couple times. And sometimes I just can't help myself, but my goal is not <laughs> to object. Yeah. I mean, as, as frustrating it is, as it is when they're uh, doing that to your client and how much you want to stand up for her. I mean, all the defense is doing is doing you a favor at that point. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Because, well, and we we talk a lot about on this sh this show about how, you know, it's a strategy that takes them to a certain p point when they're filing their motions for summary judgment on causation and all this really specific stuff that that to me is not proper for a motion for summary judgment anyway, but when they're arguing about how this was going to happen to your client anyway, or what, you know, whatever it is, they, they take that approach and they can get away with it to a certain extent because it's for the judge and it's not for a jury, but then they don't sort of adjust that approach. And so they keep calling, you know, a person that's sitting in the courtroom with them obese, you know, to their face. And because it's kind of what they've been doing in their, you know, briefs the whole time. There's another word. It's heavy. Why don't they use, I agree with you, use the yeah. word heavy, and they don't. Don't say it 500 times. I mean, right. the jury got it the second time. Yeah. You know, they didn't need to hear it out of her own mouth. I mean, I think at one point she showed her medical, it says you are you know, obese and smoker. and It was, yeah. I don't know. Well, well, Nick hit on it. Um, he was exactly 100% right. You know, the jury connected to um, 
Carolyn because she's just the every person. Everybody's got a Carolyn in their family. They haven't set the world on fire. Their husband left them and traded them in for a younger and left them a kid who isn't setting the world on fire. But, you know, I used to think back in the day with passion and my skill oratory, I could convince any old jury to do anything I wanted. I learned very quickly in these medical cases you can, and you got to expert them. And that's what we did. We had, you know, and it's fun when you have one instance, they couldn't handle Borhani because he killed him. So the defense lawyer decides, okay, well, I'm going to bring up the fact that my expert from Texas knows this guy at the University of Illinois at Chicago, who is the guru of PVD and, and diabetes. Well, yeah, that's true. Dr. Edelman or whatever his name was is the big deal. So I don't know why she did it because all I had to ask um, that expert, Amy Garcia, on redirect was now, Dr. Edelman, he's the guru of PVD at University of Illinois at Chicago, right? Yeah. And Dr. Borhani, he's chief at University of Illinois at Chicago, right? So what's that make Dr. Mm-hmm. Borhani? Right. That was my, you know, it makes him his boss. Okay, I'm done. Right. Thank you. Right. You know, serve yeah. it up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I noticed when you were uh, talking about Dr. Gibbs, uh, and and she certainly has, uh, uh, you know, sounds like a great expert, especially for uh, retained uh, objects, um, that one of their experts was referring to an article written by Dr. Gibbs to support her opinions. Yeah, I mean, which is, I mean, that's just like gold when that's handed to you. Dr. Mandelbaum, he don't like me. (laughs) We had a lot of fun with Dr. Mandelbaum, but yes, exactly. He had a previous sponge case. He testified for a doctor saying it's all the nurse's fault based on something Gibbs wrote. The same law firm that was defending the ER doctor had used Dr. Mandelbaum when they were defending um, a a surgeon in another case. So he became our expert. All of their experts became our experts. You know, you know, know, I can see you've got these huge verdicts, Steve and and Yvonne. And you know how it is when after your experts done, it's a week later, you've heard from six of their experts. You forget (laughs) what your experts said. Mm-hmm. Right. So you've got to every one of their experts, you've got to take them down and beat yeah. them down. Yep. You can't do that in every case, but you can in cases like this because you're right and they're wrong. Yeah. No. And, and the fact that they're relying on your experts article, I had a case, a uh, necrotizing fasciitis case where my doctor was he just he had handled more necrotizing fasciitis, fasciitis cases than any, anybody else in the country. And their expert had studied under him. He was he was her professor. And so, so when I, so when I was cross-examining her, I just said, well, all right. So when Dr. Fry taught you how to do this, he told you to do this and, and they didn't do it, did they? And she's like, no, they didn't do that. You know? So I was like, so they didn't do it the way you were trained to do it. Um, but yeah, so those things like that, just, uh, um, you know, and it falls when it falls in your lap, you got to love it, you know, Oh yeah, you got to love it. Yvonne, uh, you know, that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now 
Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis (laughs) you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quinn, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. I'm wondering if you guys can talk, you know, we've talked a lot about all the different you know, folks that that let Carolyn down along the way. And then when you got to trying this case, as Steve mentioned, you had you had one part of the case that was going to be tried separately because it was a Federal Tort Claims Act case. And then you had the the rehab facility that had basically paid up and settled out of the case. So you had um, those empty chairs when you were trying the case. And I know that happens in, in, a, in a lot of folks' cases now. And I'm just, I'm hoping for our listeners, you all can talk about how you handle that with the jury for purposes of their apportionment without letting, you know, without you letting it. them go wild and, and give it to all the empty chair folks. You own it in opening yeah. statement. You own it with every witness. You make sure all of your experts criticize them all. And you make sure that none of their experts, because they never want to criticize each other during discovery when you're taking expert right. depot. So then at trial, if they try to start, well, you didn't criticize them back at that deposition. They're not sitting here defending themselves, but you just, I just own it. And I've had a lot of success. You know, um, the majority of my medical malpractice verdicts have involved empty chairs. And I've just, from the, you just, there's nothing, you, you just got, you can't hide from it. You know, yeah. you, you definitely can't um, try to say, oh, they're, they're not really that responsible that, you know, you, the nursing home screwed up. Dr. Brumley screwed up because they did. And yeah. can you leave it at that? So I, I did want to talk to you about Dr. Nunley, and I'm sorry for mispronouncing his name at, at the beginning. But he, so he was the doctor who ordered the CT scan four years afterwards, and um, and then sees, or or at least the radiologist saw 
the um, sponge or the the magnetic marker for the sponge and then testified that she had, I think it was a woman, uh, had told him that. And then he didn't tell either uh, Miss Bursty or Dr. Brumleaf. Uh, and then I, I understand that his defense was basically pointing the finger at Dr. Brumley that, well, she should have picked it up. She should have told him. And from, from what I can tell, he's the only one who the jury didn't find any liability for. And, 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 I, and in your closing, at least you, um, you mentioned, it sounded like you got his, his own experts to admit that him not telling them was a breach of the standard of care. So I was wondering if, what, what your thoughts were with, with Dr. Nunley. We, you I, I mean, I think, and, and I did his cross. I thought it went well. Um, I think both thought it went well. But I think they thought he was absolved when he sent the records on to Brumleaf and okay. she signed off on him two weeks later. To the jury, his liability, according to them, was kind of those two weeks. And I think they kind of thought, well, look, at two weeks, he did what any other doctor does. He passes the buck. Let's say you come in for, I'm just going to make something up. You come in for some sort of scan. Maybe there's cancer. You don't know. You send it off uh, you know, to the oncologist. It's up to them at that point. It's out of that doctor's hands. So I think the jury, if because because she had actually, Brumley, the, the family health center doctor, two weeks later had actually signed off on the sheet, like on the actual sheet she that said it, there was yeah. a radiopaque sponge that she saw it. And his, I mean, he was kind of, what do you call him, bumbling up there, Bo? I, mean, I was, was going to say kind of like a, 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 a beagle, just yeah. kind of like, you know, he just, he, he wasn't, he could not, he couldn't help but feel sorry for the guy. Okay. Right. He was just yeah. sort of like, you know, uh, and, you know, he'd been in ER medicine for 20 some odd years and, and the shelf life on that usually, it's the, he's an outlier. But usually those guys I found who are outliers in ED, they're like these really fit kind of workout guys. He was this, you know, heavy frumpy kind of just not well put nice together, guy but a nice guy very nice guy very scared nice to man. death yeah yeah, yeah. And, and the jury just you know they they had a good demonstrative aid they said they of all the days it was in her his was less than two percent they yeah. had a big long yeah. timeline and yeah. a little two percent of all the days and the jury um they decided that they wanted to let him walk. I just think just because they felt sorry for him. Yeah, he was. Yeah. I probably went. I'm used to cross-examining criminal co-defendants or and Bo told me to back off at one point. He's like, <laughs> tone it down. This right. guy's, you're just, just making us look bad. You're, you're punching this guy in the nose over and over. So, right. Like, um, you want to ask him, how dumb are you? Where I mean, you, you know, that, right. you know how, how, do you not, how you didn't read it. You know, it was right at a shift change. So that's what happened. He gets a call from the radiologist. He's leaving, not listening. And it just slips through the cracks. And then yeah. Brumley blows it um, when it's, it's faxed over to her. She's take, But that poor lady, she's taking care of all these lower socioeconomic types. And, you know, she's a true believer. And she's a sweet, sweetheart of a lady, too. You know, you can't help hard feel sorry for her. But she wasn't there to feel sorry for. So the jury put, put, put fault on her. Which, again, goes back to my point earlier. To me, I care so. I think the human element matters so much. If mm -hmm. Dr. Yeah. Morris would have been more likable, I think the jury may not have either a punished you of L or the verdict would have been less. If he would have got up there and said, We're sorry, we made, made a mistake and mm -hmm. it's just yeah. going to happen. Did, did you all and, catch the issue with, I'm sorry, no, with okay. Dr. Morris and the fact he didn't have separate counsel? Has that gotten on your all's radar? Because that was a real interesting ethical quandary yeah. that the defense lawyer had brought up mid trial. Oh, the def the defense lawyer brought that up. Okay, because we've no, seen. Got, oh, okay. 
Let's go ahead. Well, Sorry. What happened was, Doctor, the defense lawyer wouldn't let me ask him at their deposition. Wouldn't let me ask Doctor Morris um, if you're not at fault. It's a nurse's fault. Objection. Expert opinion. You can't answer it. Well, that's what every sponge case, every retained body case, they always point at the nurses. I, I said to the doc up in Massachusetts in this little conference, I said, Doc. I'm trying to help you out. I said, you're here and they're operating. You got this bloody surgery. You got your hands in there. And then, you know, the nurses aren't keeping track. Isn't it their fault? Wouldn't let them answer. So then I get him up on the stand. I go, doctor, was it your fault? Well, I don't want to place blame. Well, so if it's, if you're not placing blame, are you accepting fault? No, I'm not accepting fault. Then you're placing blame, buddy. So whose fault right. is it? And the mm -hmm. nurses. Well, at that point, the judge calls up there and says, did you hear what I heard? Miss Keith, the defense lawyer, does he need separate counsel? So she got two, she went and got an, a, they call it a hotline ethics opinion. And that hotline ethics opinion didn't come back overnight. So the next morning we had to suspend his testimony. She got a regular ethics opinion through the normal channels during the day. By the end of the day, she said she'd gotten conflicting expert opinions as to whether or not they, he could sign a waiver of conflict at that point. How and there's some case law out of Virginia, Illinois. Look at you can't you can't waive that conflict, but they waived it, and then he got tagged, and he never had one doctor defend him. Which you know, my very first million million dollar um, verdict back in well, the second one in '97 was a sponge case, and I didn't know at the time what I had. We left the hospital out relatively cheap, and I thought I could get the doctors because they're the doctors and they're in charge. Well, that jury came back and they put twelve percent fault on those two doctors. Um, and only they would have walked the two doctors. And the only reason they put fault on was because they got got them caught in a lie. They started pointing fingers at each other mid trial in 97. Since then, there's been no verdicts that I could find against the doctor. Yeah. Right. Until this yeah. one. Mm -hmm. And yeah. he's unrepresented. He doesn't have an he does not have a lawyer hiring, he, hiring an expert saying it's not your fault. It's the nurse's fault. Wow. OK, yeah. so I, I had seen that about the waiver issue coming up or the conflict and and, and the waiver in during trial, but I, I wasn't sure if what I was thinking what had triggered that was this decision right before trial to finally admit that it was their sponge. But it was really when he gets on the stand and you're kind of pressing him about these questions about fault, that that's what kind of triggers the, the conflict. Correct. He said it was a nurse's fault and his lawyer represented the nurses. And right. That explains why. He never hired an expert or his lawyers never hired an expert to point fingers at the nurses. You see, U of L, we have three major defendants here in town on these medical malpractice cases. University of Louisville, it's owned by, by Kentucky One now. We got a Baptist health group and, and a Norton health group. And they have the, the risk managers like to hire, reduce their, their costs and hire the same lawyer to represent the docs and the nurses. Before it used to be a separate group. And that their insurance company would, would take care, but it is not. I'm seeing more and more of this, but never this clear. Wow. Of, of where it just, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. And then the judge said, you know, he wanted us to see, you, you, you want a mistrial, you know, you, what do you want to do? I said, no, I just want a popcorn and a Coke, like in the movie theater. And I want to sit and watch this transpire. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. I ain't tried this. You know, I can handle it. You know, her, right. That's her ethical problem, not mine. It played yeah, in our yeah. favor. I mean, yeah. we've we've seen that come up in cases and we, you know, we always say to ourselves, like, how do they not recognize this as a conflict? But it 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 seems to happen all the time. And especially in medical malpractice cases where you get people representing multiple doctors, multiple, you know, entities and and not recognizing it. Um, See, I, I don't even know if the surgeon who got hit for 10 percent, um, 950,000 bucks of that nine point five million. I don't even he knows. Yeah, because he's a sharp guy. And, and Nick's was is completely correct. He wasn't. He wasn't warm and fuzzy. 
And all the yeah. times they're not, but they get away with it because, you know, they're, they're, they, they just get away with it because of the um, predisposition of the juries down here anyway mm-hmm. to find for these docs. But he not, I think he's clueless to the fact that what happened should not have happened to him. He should not have gotten tagged. Right. They yeah. Appropriately. They yeah. should have been 70% on the hospital. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. And, and Nick, back to your point. I mean, I, you know, if the jury likes your client and doesn't like the other side, I mean, you are so far up, uh, you know, on that case, because if, if it comes down to a question of, you know, who to, who to believe they're going to, you know, usually, um, you know, side with the side, the side that they find likable. Um, yeah. so it's, it, it, it's such a big part. I, I will say, and I'll, I'll give a little shout out to one of our uh, defense lawyers here in Georgia, uh, John Peters, who we tried a case against. Uh, he he handled a uh, doctor that was not a likable guy better than anybody I've ever seen because he just stood up in the opening and he said, you're not going to like my doctor. He's not a personable guy. He's not, you know, he doesn't have a lot of friends. He's like, but he, did a job, you know, and he, he just owned it. I mean, he, and I was like, man, he really, uh, he really, uh, he really did a great job on, on defending, uh, defending the doctor in that case, so he, who was not, who was not like a charismatic person on the stand. Take the sting yeah. out, right? You got right. to bite right. first. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, Steve, I, so I, I had a, some questions about damages, but I don't want to. Yeah. Uh, no, no, go. You go. Um, I saw one of the things that you all did that I really liked um, that um, was you had a you had a I think you had a visual to go with it. But you also had a point sort of in your outline of your closing about putting basically a brick wall between all these apportionment issues and when it comes to damages. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about what you tell the jury about that, because that seemed very effective to me. Uh, it hadn't happened to me in a while because I started doing it that way. But for a number of, you know, early on in my career, the jury's always come back with a question about apportionment and in relation to damages. And well, how much, if it's this much fault of this doctor, how much damages do we award against them? So what I started doing and it was effective. This this last trial and it's been effective in other trials is I literally because the way it works in Kentucky, you, you, you talk about liability where pure comparative fault, pure apportionment. Once that's done, you're supposed to stop thinking about that and award damages. So I'll literally put a brick wall up on the screen and I say, OK, we've done our, 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 our fault analysis and you're going to have checked yes against all these folks. We've done our apportionment. You're going to split it up. Then I have a brick wall fly down into the screen and then I have it push all that aside and damages come down. Well, now we're talking about damages. And 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 I, I think that I'm going to use that in basically all my trials with apportionment from now on, whether they're medical or not, because the juries oftentimes get confused, in, at least in my experience, and they try to mix and match them. And I think it causes a reduction in damages oftentimes. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. And I, I just really like that idea because I think we're always trying to get that point across, at least in our cases, um, that you know, we have, mo- we have, you know, we have apportionment and, and modified comparative fault. And then we were always trying to sort of get that across that you don't, you know, don't work, you do your percentages and then you do your damages and you don't, you know, there's no discounting and you can, you know, when you've got an economist who's testifying about things, then, you know, these are the numbers you can think about. And, um, but I do feel like oftentimes it still ends up, I mean, damage is always, 
end up being something that maybe juries use to compromise, just like I think they do with apportion percentages when, when they, especially in Georgia, when they need to get to a unanimous verdict. But um, I, I really found that to be an effective visual and um, just kind of a way of explaining it to a jury. Like there's just a wall here, like just well, stop. Because you've been so kind, I'm going to send you when we get done here, my, my PowerPoint. I know I sent you the slides and you can just, you are on a keynote, you can just copy and paste. Cause all right. All nice. Great. Thank you. you, have, <laughs> Thank you. Chart, have the pie chart and everything. You know? Yes. And Thank you. you. Put, but you don't, you, you got to give yourself some time. When the night before, you can't do it in like five minutes when you're adapted to your case because they're very, but anyway, it's, it's easy. It's easy. Nice. Well, thank you so much. I, I adding on to the damages. So I, I didn't exactly explain at the beginning, uh, 8,075,000, uh, of your verdict was pain and suffering. Um, walk through a little bit about how you proved up the pain and suffering, what kind of things you, you told the jury about to get them to that number. We had two demonstrative aids, her foot before and her foot after. Um, and they were big blow-ups. Got them right back there, in fact. And then in between, I put the sponge in a box. And I said, before, no treatment. After this, everything she'd been through. And she'd been through hell and back. I said, it's a $10 million pain and suffering thing. But in the event you don't think... And yeah, I think you should, but if you don't think that the leg is related to the sponge, she still had a sponge in her for six years, but she wasn't told about the snake through her intestine, so it's five minutes. Right. So she had been causing you know, vomiting and diarrhea the whole time. She yeah. had to put plastic bags on her seat and towels to drive her um, grandchildren around to daycare, and she would soil herself. On, on Halloween in in 19 or 16, rather, when this happened, Howie is 16. She eats a piece of candy and starts projectile vomiting over the size size of side of her um, front porch. I oh mean, my God. it was just it was just a nightmare. And the time involved. I mean, I think the thing is, like seeing these, you know, when we see these medical malpractice ca cases come through, you can see these horrible symptoms for sure. But the the sheer amount of time that she was suffering through that is what's I think so hard to to get your head around. No, I, I agree. It was it's a, it, it I mean it was complicated putting together all of the evidence because there's a lot of exhibits because it took so much time but the, the the crux of the case was very simple. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, yeah. Oh, back to one, one issue I forgot to ask you about on the sort of the causation type side of it is I thought you I, knowing that she had peripheral vascular disease and was a diabetic. So she, you know, was going to, you know, have problems with uh, circulation, possibly with her legs, which she had had before and also with pressure sores. I thought the way you all handled the fact that she had had pressure sores on her feet in 2015 uh, really good. Cause I mean, that could have been a problematic area that the defense might've picked up on saying, well, look, I mean, th this proves that she was going to have problems all along and may have lost her leg, but you all sort of turned that around and used that to your advantage. The fact that she had had those pressure sores in 2015. Talk about that a little bit. Well, in 11, they left the sponge in her. She had peripheral vascular disease. They had a successful surgery re rerouting her blood um, to her legs. And in the six years between getting the sponge, the sponge left in and cut out in the five, five years and eight months, she had gotten two, um, you can't even call them ulcers. They were blisters on her heels, one on the left, one on the right, that both recovered with, with simple cream. So 
And her peripheral vascular disease didn't just miraculously, they tried to say it did, but I was able to, we were able to knock that down too. They tried to say all of a sudden it just got critical level right when, coincidentally, when the sponge came out of her. But (laughs) if you look at her ABIs and all the objective tests and there, you know, there wasn't a whole lot, but there was enough to let it know that was just a crock. But, you know, it was just, we, we were able to take their records and prove that she was not at risk. Or not, not well. The fact of the matter is, she didn't get anything cut off in five years, right. ladies and gentlemen, with the jury. And then they get the sponge cut out, and she's got her leg cut off. But we didn't run from them either. That was put up an opening. It was out there right away to say, "Look, it's probably what they're going to say." I mean, we laid out their entire defense and opening, yeah, uh, so that when they got up there, it it literally turned to let's talk about her being obese and smoking, mm-hmm. and, and right, that's what. Right. I mean, our damages were so strong that I we got their all of their experts to admit that it was a breach of the standard of care to leave the sponge in. It was a substantial factor in causing her to have the sponge cut out and be laid up for about a month and a half before the, the abdominal wound closed. And we had I literally had one of their experts quantify it to the point of ninety thousand dollars of medicals. Right. And we we then move for directed verdict, which I'd never do. I don't I know. I don't even preserve my record with the silly motion because it's not even, you know, I don't I'm getting tired by that part of the trial. My right. voice is getting hoarse <laughs> and I'm not going to get it. And I don't, I don't deserve it. I moved for directed verdict at a bench brief. And I believe the only reason the judge didn't give it to me is because the, the jury instructions would have been untenable. They would have been I don't I don't know how you would have even written the instructions. Go ahead and give them 90. You know, it would have confused everything. So he just made, you know. Yeah. He didn't give me a directed verdict, but we we deserved it. I think we'll get it on appeal. So and and so the status of the case now is that it's on appeal. Is yes, they're okay. they're they're out. They're trying them out. They're just you know they're doing. They're going to appeal it and wait. And why pay us now if they can pay us in a few years? Is kind of what I'm the gist I'm getting. I've, I've, no, they have not approached us at all. Oh wow! They've hired the biggest law firm in the state to handle the appeal. Um, Frost Brown Todd. Um, pre, you know, our medical malpractice defense bar here in Louisville is consists of a lot of boutique, smaller, mid-sized firms that simply work for either the hospital systems or the insurance carriers. And they went out and hired this mega firm that just does appeals to try to fix the mistakes made, you know, at the trial level by their trial counsel. And, and is the uh, Federal Tort Claims Act case against Dr. Brumleave, is that still pending? We resolved that a few months okay. um, after the verdict. Um, we used the the, um, the jury um, verdict as a as sort of an outline, but it really doesn't apply in, right, right. in federal. I mean, you got I have a, a federal judge <laughs> who could very easily have walked, you know, Dr. Brumley, and definitely wasn't going to, based upon who appointed her and his previous things that we'd heard. I wasn't, you know, optimistic that, you know, yeah. it was going to be a huge recovery but it was fair it was fair and the the magistrate judge did a phenomenal job they're great judges up there it's just they're very conservative right yeah 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 Yeah, exactly well i thought you're the um the orders that we got on your on sort of the post the post judgment motions at least from the trial court were really strong i mean and ask for better orders than that I don't know if y'all drafted them and they just got signed, but they're good. He was annoyed to try the case, I think. I mean, it, it turned once it, it turned when the ethical conflict was revealed. And then, yeah. you know, he commented to me, I've never had, I think we had 20 some odd doctors testify in this case. Right. And he says, I've never had one like this, Bo. And I'm like, 
well, you know, it, it kind of is what it is, but each one got better and better and better. And he's like, this is kind of as obvious as, uh, you know, we had been saying from the beginning. They're really, you know, they can write this, this complicated causation, like we threaded the needle with a little angel dancing on top of it and she didn't fall off. It wasn't that. Right. No, she got laid up and got her leg locked off all because he left a sponge in her. And that's what yeah. we kept saying to the yeah. point that the ex- I got that. I got one of my experts even said it because she was getting annoyed, you know, so therefore I could argue the lop off. I can't just say lop off. But I mean, literally, that's what they're doing. They're just lopping the leg off so she doesn't get gangrene and die. Right. Right. So, yeah, you know, uh, so you said that as you were putting up your case, it just kept getting better and better. Was that an intentional order of proof that you had put together? You knew they were going to roll out like that? Or is that just you sort of the the way it happened during trial? It happened that way because they, for whatever reason, just didn't want to evaluate this case. They didn't even want to pay us a million before trial. They thought the judge changes, too, though, because yeah, in. Motions and Wadir. I mean, I love Judge Perry. I've tried a ton of cases in front of him, but he was very hostile to me. He yelled at me and it's like, stop trying to pull stuff. You know, I, and he basically because he's like, I, I think he thought we were being potentially greedy. Like they're, the, you know, these lawyers, you know, they're asking for too much. And then as the case developed, I think he heard opening and then he heard the doc, their doctor testify. And and he's like, why are we here? Why are you, right. you know, basically to the defense, why are you not settling this case? And I mean, he asked several times, I probably half a dozen. Have you all discussed settling this mm-hmm. case? Have you all discussed this? I mean, why is this not not to us? At that point, we were out. I mean, he was right. looking at them saying, <clears throat> have you all discussed settling this case? And they were just like, uh, no, not really. Or So well, you hit the nail on the head. You know, they do it all the time. And pre-trial motion practice and stuff. They like to say how unreasonable we're being or we're asking for the moon and they'll throw numbers out there to get in the judges or, you know, they're human and they hear it and they're like, well, why the heck would, you know, is this so special? Why did you get all this money? But by the time the proof came in, it was, you know, that we conceivably could have asked, I guess, more for pain and suffering would have maybe gotten more, you know, but we did what we did. Yeah. So it, back to that uh, for a second, when you had these, amounts where do where do you put that in your pre-trial order that you uh set the i guess the maximum that you can get for your client yeah they ask they send us interrogatories and then you got you got to tell them then and then if you don't tell them then you got to tell them in your item the pre-trial orders typically have a itemization of deadlines deadline and you just itemization of damages deadline rather and you just put in there how much you want to ask for and i always make it really high and then if it doesn't pan out i graduate it down you know by the time you submit it to the jury. Right. Yeah. And and then and then so in close, you're I mean, you're basically giving them those numbers. Correct. Yeah. But it's coming from the judge, okay. not me. You know, it's the judge says this is the most you can okay. get for this. Okay. Right. Got okay. It. Okay. Well, I mean, it's a terrific result. I mean, I know you're kind of doing that thing we all do about whether you could have gotten more, but I mean, it's a really terrific result in a venue that you were coming into where everybody was just losing med miles for years. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, well, that's true, but you know, they, they like to cherry pick what they try. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, um, the defense bar does, and I had one in 18, I would have broken the streak on, but it went so well, we settled right before closing, which mm-hmm. I'd never done before, but it was, I just do the dynamics and a couple of exceptions cases are real tough. I found, and um, I've tried, tried a handful of them and 
batting about 500 on them, and I've lost one on a random jury pull at the end. I, I, that's my sour grapes. I know I would have won if I wouldn't have lost the foreman, but they go back splitting. So I didn't want to risk, but we would have broke that streak in 18, but but yeah. for the fact we settled that one. But yeah, that. They're um they're tough to get in, in Jefferson County for the reasons Nick said earlier. Just it's a it's a, it's a lot of lot of employees in the medical community. Yeah, well, um, I mean, it's just a great job. We wish you the best of luck on your your appeal. Uh, I want to remind everybody that we've been talking about Bursty versus uh, University Medical Center, uh, DVA, uh, University of Louisville. Uh, hospital, uh, which resulted in a uh, $9.5 million verdict uh, in compensatories and then a $1 million verdict in punitives for a total of $10.5 million. Um, Bo and Nick, is there anything um, that we haven't talked about uh, the Bursty case that you want to make sure that our, our listeners know about? No, no. Thank you again for having us on. It's a, on, on your show. It's an honor. Well, it's it's an honor having you guys on, and and uh, really great result on a. I, I know you know it, it. On the one hand, as you're explaining it, it is a very straightforward. You know, th- this case should have been done a long time ago. But you know, no trying one medical malpractice case is hard enough when you're basically combi- combining four different you know uh, different acts of negligence. Uh, it, that that's a that's a tall order. Um, so, uh, so congratulations. I, I want to remind everybody that we've been talking to Bo Bolas and Nick Mudd and, you know, uh, Yvonne, I totally screwed up at the beginning. <laughs> I didn't give out their, their, their websites. That's uh, right. Let me, uh, let me make sure if you want to read more about Bo Bolas, go to boluslaw.com. That's B-O-L-U-S law.com. And, uh, if you want to read more about Nick Mudd, uh, go to mudlegalgroup.com. That's M-U-D-D legalgroup.com. Uh, so, Bo and Nick, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you, Bo. Thank you all. Thanks, guys. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, 
um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.